0: Welcome, everybody, to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Rebell, and I'm the co-host of this show. And I'm Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, what a cool day, because I'm really excited. We're going to have back on the show today, Tyler, our very good friend, Dr. Joseph Kunkel from the great state of Maine. Class Uh, is in session. Class is in session, kids. We're going to find out more about the Maine lobster fishery and what's going on up there with one of the preeminent experts on the topic. Welcome to
1: the American Shoreline podcast, Joe.
2: Well, I'm uh, glad to be
1: back. Uh, We really look forward to talking to Joe, we know you do, too. Uh, Joe's show is one of the most popular shows uh, out of all the ones we've done so far. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our Uh, sponsors. we got three people we like to thank, three companies that help keep
0: Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast functioning LJA Engineering out of Austin, Texas, the leader of their coastal division, Bill Worsham, a great firm, 28 offices on the Gulf. You'll love what they do. If you're interested and need Coastal Engineering Services, call Bill Worsham at Coastal, uh, wait a minute,
1: LJA.com. LJA.com. We'd also like to thank our good friend Michael Poff and Coastal Engineering Consultants, one of the most community-minded, budget-minded Uh, just great coastal engineering companies on the gulf uh, coast and on the atlantic coast over there in florida they're now out of naples you can uh, learn more about them and get in touch with them at coastalengineering.com
0: and finally frederick barisette from pensacola florida and her company dune doctors a dune restoration natural dune plant shoreline uh, stabilization company they do it all from concept permits into construction Frederic and her team at Dune Doctors is super good. Uh, I've worked with them uh, several times. I can tell you they're real
1: pros. Find them at DoonDoctors.com. Well, Peter, uh, we heard last time we had Joe on that he was going. He was fixing to head out to sea on a big uh, scientific expedition uh, to advance the study of lobster shell disease and lobsters and how they're doing with... Uh, warmer waters there in the in the Gulf of Maine and all around those that area, and uh, the expedition has happened. He has gone to sea. He has returned, and we are thrilled to have him back. Uh, Joe, let's talk first about this expedition. Tell, fill us in on what this is. I understand that this is kind of an annual four part uh, expedition, four leg expedition. Let us let us know a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish out there.
2: Okay, well. This is a rather special expedition. It's actually called the Groundfish Expedition, Northeast Groundfish Expedition, and it's carried out in the springtime and in the fall every year. And it's it started uh, 40, 50 years ago, actually. We have that many years of records of wow. the groundfish. Wow. Now, the groundfish are... The, the fish that you would put on your table uh, and also besides that the things that they eat so that we understand uh, what are the supportive uh, organisms that uh, end up as fish or shellfish on your table. So, including uh, included with fish are shellfish, including lobsters. And also uh, uh, they also survey things like uh, blue mussels and and uh, other other mollusks that hmm. are used on the table Joe what so, uh,
0: what species do you, well on the fish' you talking cod here what are we talking
2: oh of course cod mm-hmm. uh, hake yeah uh, bluefish uh, haddock uh actually goosefish or uh now it's more you know people don't like the idea the, the name goosefish so monkfish which is we
1: all heard served, that one
2: monkfish tails are uh, so they they cover all the fish uh hake um one of my favorites is is uh hake it's it's lighter than codfish. Codfish is the white fish that is rather heavy as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And hake is a, a lighter version of that. It's in the same group of fish called the uh, uh The gaddidi uh, include uh, haddock, hake, uh, codfish, uh, and uh, a number of other fish that end up uh, being sold as whitefish, so uh, so Joe, a whitefish.
1: Yeah, it's obvious. You know, this is a but lot. also
2: octopus. Oh wow, octopus, squid. Uh, wow, your
1: cephalopods, and course,
2: Joe. lobsters, and uh, th- it's done in four legs. Each leg is about two weeks long. Uh, so the ship goes out four different times. Four different times. It starts from. Uh, Uh, Newport, Rhode Island, the first leg goes down uh, as far as the Cape Hatteras, and it does that Cape Hatteras, Chesapeake Bay, uh, the, the ocean adjacent to Chesapeake Bay. It doesn't really go into Chesapeake Bay. And so we're doing coastal stuff. Each state will survey their fish, their ground fish, uh, in their sort of state territorial waters. And then, uh, the, the federal government surveys the fish out to about 300 miles where that we consider our territory.
1: So Joe, uh, first of all, that sounds really interesting. And I mean, such a broad, uh, swath of, you know, territory to, uh, to survey, but also so many different types of species. Who all is on this vessel uh, along with you? I mean, I imagine yeah. you're going to need state people, yeah. biologists. Uh, to Fill us in on on what what, and, and tell us about the boat too. Yeah, what, yeah. What well, kind of okay, boat is? So it's got to be fairly uh, large, I imagine.
2: The current boat is the uh, uh, NOAA ship HB Bigelow. Bigelow was a person who. Um, H.B. Bigelow, there are several Bigelows, but H.B. Bigelow actually uh, sailed around uh, the Gulf of Maine and he has a famous book of all the organisms, uh, uh, the marine organisms of the Gulf of Maine. Aptly named this. And that is uh, at my website, there's a link to uh, an old version of that. Uh, It's been updated, you know, but there's an older version, you know, there's purely black and white illustrations. But of all the fish of the Gulf of Maine,
3: That's and
2: uh, and so the this ship was named after him, and and it came online uh, in the early 2000s uh, as the new ship. Um, and, and prior to that, I was on the Albatross, the Albatross Four. So there were have been four Albatrosses, and the first one was uh, b- uh, before. Uh, uh, 1900. It was wow. in the 1880s that uh, the first Albatross started surveying, oh. and uh, and actually during World War One and World War Two, they they actually commandeered these ships and they would actually patrol patrol the coast as a sort of naval uh, right. Attachment, rather than uh, doing biological surveys. Well, clearly. So, uh, yeah. And, however, we have uh, fifty years of very similar surveying. So, data on codfish, on haddock, on lobsters, dating back that length of time, and so we know a lot about these fisheries due to this Northeast Groundfish Survey.
0: How long have you been going on the cruise?
2: Well. You know, actually, they published a little thing about me going out. Um, You know, I thought, oh, this is just they're going to do a thing on me for a newsletter. Anyway, it was published in fisheries, uh, the fisheries journal. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And, And I was, you know, very hokey. Uh, in my interview there, and uh, I find and that
1: very hard it to believe.
2: Appears <laughs> in an actual journal. <laughs>
1: <you> know, <laughs> this of is my, peer-reviewed, uh, that point, right?
2: It was like 25 years of of uh, you know 25 legs, not 25 years. So in the uh, right around the time that the lobster shell disease became important, um, I started going out. So uh, 1996. Uh, I or 1997 was my first time out on the. Okay. Uh, at that time, the Albatross, we well, you know, which was a very it was a boat that you know rocked up and down, and um, and water came over the side and swept mm-hmm. buckets of fish from one side to the other side <laughs> of the deck, and you were working out on deck. and Now, um, we transitioned to this l- quite a bit larger uh uh hb bigelow and uh we're working inside
3: mm-hmm.
2: and it's all making mechan- a lot of mechanized a lot wow. of computers you've never seen so many computers on a boat wow uh, and all of this uh, associated with you know sampling the ocean Measuring the temperature, measuring the salinity.
0: Automated.
2: uh, Measuring the depth, and then uh, all the species that we catch at each troll site. So it's a tremendous amount
0: of data being taken in. By- you know, Joe, that's the thing about yeah. kids today, you know? They just don't know how well they have it. Do you know that? Did the old guys on that crew sit around and go, back in the day when we used <laughs> to have to slog around on the deck, the wind would be blowing, we're out there, you could right. fall off, and these kids today complaining the food's no good. Does that happen on the boat? <laughs> well, yeah come on
2: <laughs> my the first uh, I, i've been seasick four times on the um, and that was all on the albatross on, oh, on really? the bigelow uh, uh it's hard to get seasick on the bigelow it's such a stable platform how how long is she uh something like 150 feet wow um, nice and with bell. a 50 foot breadth wow Wow. So it's like it's uh, beam. I think they it's call like it. a beam. Yeah, you know, yeah. Right? You know I'm, I you know, I'm really not a sailor. My brother's Me a sailor. My brother was, my brother was actually a uh, a um, uh, an officer on a boat that was a navy boat that used to do this type of uh, surveys. They were oh, surveying. Really? They were, the Navy was doing the surveying of uh, trawling and, and uh, looking at organisms mm-hmm. and also trying to measure the temperature to uh, three decimal places wow. uh, all the way down to something like uh, 5,000 feet or something. Huh. And, and the objective of that for the Navy was to be able to uh, do a weather report on the ocean
3: Hmm.
2: so that if a um if a submarine a nuclear submarine passed by it would heat up the ocean and you'd be able to actually uh, tell that a, a, a foreign submarine was there wow and of course they totally failed because particularly due to more modern ideas about Ocean currents; the temperature of the ocean is controlled by deep currents hmm. that they never got down to measure, and so huh. you couldn't adequately right. predict it was the a bad idea. temperature.
0: But it was good science, and that probably helped uh, all well, you scientists. it was good science,
2: and then they passed the whole the whole um, issue of surveying um, uh, back in the. 1950s 1960s on to uh noah
0: yeah which where it should be uh yeah but so uh joe give us a flavor now you since i love the fact that you talked about the fact that this boat the albatross the original one was back in the uh eight, 19 or 1800s and that this survey has been going on for more than 50 years uh th- it's important that people know how much work goes into finding these trends and to taking a look at what's going on in this, uh, these environments and tracking the same thing year after year after year. So, yes. Um, and
2: and the, the importance of that is that, um, these, this is what they call a random, uh, random trolls. That is, you know, mm-hmm. they don't, they don't know where the fish are. Mm-hmm that is they take the point of view we don't know where the fish are or will go to in the future so that we will uh we will survey our our ocean territory randomly right whereas the fishermen the commercial fishermen you know now they have all sorts of gear for finding the fish yeah and so they'll they they will fish out the last little pocket of cod if you give them the opportunity and and they argue very often vehemently against noah's survey and saying well you know you're saying there aren't many cod fish there well we know where the cod are and we can catch cod and certainly they can an expert fisherman knows where the cod are hiding yeah. And we'll hunt out and fish out the last very the very last one of them, okay. and so
0: that's so,
2: the way the argument goes. Okay, we let me random. All right, random hang survey. on a second.
0: All right, all right, random survey. Now listen, I I'm very interested in in that in that tension you just described between the utility yeah. of a random survey um, and what the fishermen know to be you know more accurate. They're doing something different. Um, how and I don't know if your data actually impacts or is used in fisheries management decision making, but if oh, absolutely it absolutely it is okay. So so why does it make sense? I mean, this I'm asking you to de- to describe this, help our audience understand what a random survey is, and I know that is a scientific method, but could you explain why it makes sense to just. Randomly pick a spot, drop a net, not select
1: and, a spot that yeah. is known to have a bunch of fish Why does in that it? make sense?
0: Well,
2: because, again, you're going to pick the center of a population to fish in commercially. Right. However, the health of the species depends upon how broadly distributed the, the fish population is and uh and also when they reproduce they may be going to uh places where uh you know uh isolated places where uh, the fishermen don't go or even you know some of the fishermen know that there are certain sites where the fish are reproducing they say okay you know for the good of the fishery we're not going to go there well the random the random uh uh, sampling that NOAA does is aimed at understanding the fish population
1: you
2: know it's it's objective isn't catching the fish the objective is knowing where the fish live
1: and eliminating and, the selection bias of of picking so how do you pick that spot do you throw a dart on a map and say hey we're sailing here how how is that random well, site there selected
2: the NOAA has, um, this is a bone of contention between me and Noah. they have picked what are called strata. A strata is a, uh, a geographical area that uh, may have some sort of geographical basis. Like it might be um, a, uh, um, an area that is a deep or it might be an area that is a shelf. Okay. Um, and okay, so they take that stratum. So the, the, the East Coast is, is made up of, I, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 strata. I, okay. A little I'm geomorphic not characteristic. In deciding but... where the strata are. I get and you. Within each stratum, they say, okay, we're going to do five random locations this year this spring and then next next fall they'll do five other random locations so the computer picks that and uh, and you go to that place now when you go to that place you have you have all sorts of uh devices for measuring whether that is it is a, a legitimate place uh, am I still being recorded yes, yes you are and, it, and, okay. and 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 so, what it
0: it and you're saying you, is it does there, it fit the strata definition is it the right geomorphic setup is it legitimately of the type you wish to sample
2: yes and also there may it may be too rocky or it may have some sna- obvious snags on the bottom that they can use their sonar their uh, scanning sonar to figure out oh we can't we can't um, troll exactly here. We'll hang up our net, so we'll we'll right. step aside, you know, one, two steps, and see whether that's a legitimate place. Okay. So there's a certain amount of searching for good bottom to troll in.
3: That that makes uh, a mean, lot of sense. As a
2: as an example of of why that's important, on the very last trawl of the fourth leg that I was on, we were supposed to be out for an additional three days. Uh, to test some new gear, but the last troll, they lost a, their set of sensors, $100,000 worth of gear. Wow. They, it just snagged up on the bottom, and they lost it. Ouch. And as a result, we came in three days early because their new gear was going to be added to some of their existing gear, and we didn't have the existing gear. It was on the bottom. and And so... Finding a good place to troll is essential to the whole process, and that sometimes holds up the progress of the uh, uh, of the survey. So Finding a good place to troll.
1: Joe, I wanna I wanna jump in here and kind of get an idea of what uh, the process looks like. So you you steam out to one of these uh, locations that meets yep. a strata uh, characteristics it's it's approved you're allowed to do it now you're dropping it sounds to me like what you're doing here is dropping a net and
2: well you're first of all you do a what they call a CTD which is concentration temperature and density probe interesting so you do a you do a uh, what they call a transect to the bottom mm-hmm. so huh. it measures the Drop the concentration gun. temperature and density of the ocean Uh, linearly all the way down to the – close to the bottom. You don't want to hit the bottom because that's very sensitive gear. Again, you're about 12 feet from the bottom. And then you bring that back up. And then uh, after that, then you uh, let out your troll net, which you troll at a certain speed for 20 minutes on the bottom.
1: So a a controlled amount of – speed, velocity, and a controlled amount of time.
2: Yes. And then you bring up that bag of of, uh, of uh, captured organisms, and you, uh, and then we sort that on deck.
1: Wow. So that's wow. got to be the fun part.
2: Well, that's that's the, the busy part. It's no, kind of Christmas morning on, right there. Uh, <laughs> we're on duty 12 hours and 12 hours off. So uh, there, there are two different sets of of uh investigators uh, uh there are uh three groups of two a cutter and an observer so the observer is running the computer and uh and the cutter is slicing up the fish measuring the fish electronically there's a measuring board uh with magnetic uh, uh, magnetic uh, uh uh, Scribed where you just touch the board at a certain point and it sends the length of the fish. Uh, the board ha- the board has a uh, a balance under it uh, uh, and so you're measuring the weight of the fish. At wow! The same time.
0: Isn't that nice?
2: And uh, and then you cut and it, it open. Transmits and it to the... the
0: computer automatically so you don't have to sit out there with your pen and paper and try to write down. Right. 3.2 the... pounds.
2: Back on the Albatross 4, we were the recorder was recording it in pencil, yeah, on waterproof paper.
0: <laughs> yeah, wow, yeah, how things that, have changed. That
2: waterproof paper had all the information, they say stroke tallies. So you would call out the length of the fish and they put a stroke on a piece of paper that had that length, that centimeter
0: length. On I it. got you,
2: and in the end. In in the end, these pieces of paper was sent down to you guys in Texas
0: to a prison where the prisoners wait a minute be paid wait to, a minute time out okay the, wait a minute paper. I've got to stop were, <laughs> are you they were so paid a penny a stroke that this oh my god are you kidding me that i know prison labor you know we've all heard about license plates that's kind of the joke about prison labor but in texas of course the prison labor system has been a powerful economic force in the state and manufacturing all kinds of things there are i you know not to we could go down the path of the exploitation of this labor source but i did not realize and have never heard that scientific data trans- transcription was yes. being done by Texas prisoners. I think these people out a to, NOAA contract. Like, how the, did, did that? How did that happen? Either university or how? Yeah, who contracted for that? We want to know. We're, we're, we're gonna, we <laughs> we're might, now in the investigative mode here. different show, but this is no well, longer it, happening, of yeah. course. But back in the and day, the
2: data the data would come back to. Uh, Woods Hole, where the National Marine Fisheries for the Northeast Groundfish Survey was centered, about uh, a couple of months later. So now, in the electronic age, we we get that data back
0: almost, instantly. You know, uh,
2: immediately when the when the ship lands, the data is transferred, and uh, mm-hmm. so they don't transfer it while we're at sea because that would take up too much. Transmission
0: lines right. with satellites bandwidth, and but all that.
2: when they when they land, they then transmit okay. the uh, internet, okay. and uh, and then uh, then it's analyzed. So I just got the data back uh, like uh, two weeks ago from uh, the information about the lobsters Okay. that was important to me. All right. So all the other data, I I could uh, not that I don't. I don't I care less about it,
0: but... Well, you have a focus. Everybody's got a focus. But I focus on the lobster data. It's not a personal bias. So they sent
2: me all of that data.
0: Well, okay. We're about to talk about a little bit. Now, I know you haven't gone through the analysis and completed that work, but for the listeners out there, uh, our first interview with with Dr. Kunkel was, and you can find it on the American Shoreline uh, podcast, go back and listen to that show. There's a whole bunch of information about... Lobsters and lobster shell disease. That show was published on March fourth uh of this year. So it's been a couple of months now. Uh Joe, I guess three months. It's been a little more than three months since we talked to you last time. Um can you share with us your observations at this point or your general impression of what not just what you're finding on this cruise compared to say last year, but in the lobster fishery health, what are you seeing out there? What, what is the data kind of suggesting to you at this point?
2: Well, at, at, at the moment, it looks like, um, well, first of all, the lobsters in the Gulf of Maine are at a peak of numbers because of, we've, because of the warming water and because of the fact that we've killed off a lot of their predators So now, Hmm. uh, in the Gulf of Maine, lobstermen are having their heyday catching lobsters. However, uh, shell disease has crept in to the Gulf of Maine, uh, uh, primarily, in my opinion, because of the conditions uh, of the ocean. Uh, During uh, global warming, we've got a... uh, the the population of lobsters is is moving north uh or is centered more north each uh, each year and uh so the lobsters are beginning in the gulf of maine are beginning to s- show shell disease on a in a regular way so we had studied uh, one population of a hot spot of of shell disease near casco bay where uh which is near Portland, Maine. And, uh, that hotspot, uh, was rather unique. It was uh, shell disease, recognizable shell disease, uh, uh, which we could see in about 20% of the population, uh, at, at times. Wow. But, but, uh, shell disease in general in the Gulf of Maine was relatively low, uh, sort of at a level close to 1% in the south and lower 0.1%, say, further north in the the Gulf of Maine. Now, um, we're seeing what I think are hot spots. In a in a sort of a, a ring of fire, you know the concept of the ring of fire. Yes, in the Pacific. Of, of volcanoes yes. in the Pacific. Yeah. But so there's sort of a ring of hot spots around the Gulf of Maine, and uh, what what this uh, what my most recent data needs to be tested uh, on is whether it is those hot spots are consistent from season to season. So we have about three seasons of data. Uh, The spring of 2019, we have a a reasonably complete set of data for the Gulf of Maine. Okay. Uh, The fall of 2018, we have the first set of data from all four legs, that is all the way from Cape Hatteras up to the tip, top of the Gulf of Maine. And this spring 2019, we have a repeat of that uh, survey on lobsters looking for shell disease uh, in every individual. And we added another, uh, another item. We're, we're looking at uh, whether they also have incrustations of barnacles because we're interested in whether hmm. barnacles are a indicator hmm. that the shell might be settled on by bacteria more easily hmm. and lead to shell disease
0: in some kind and of so a... we're
2: we're we're looking at a number of things so in a sense our protocol has changed slightly from fall of 2018 to spring of 2019 but only with this addition of the of the barnacle uh, barnacle as kind of an
0: indicator an easy to easy to see perhaps right indication right. that it's the shell for... bacterial surface is changed if that yeah, what because, is the relationship because... between the barnacle and the condition of the shell why would it why would it be more likely that there would be a barnacle on a lobster if its shell is not in good shape what would the what's the relationship there
2: well, uh, encrustations of uh, higher organisms on on the lobster shell depend upon a bacterial sheet. Wow. Really, ba- the, the laying first. The first thing you have on a surface is a bacterial film. Then something like a barnacle larva can settle down on that that uh, bacterial film. I mean, this is okay. based on on understanding barnacles and how they settle down. Okay. So, and uh, and so other encrustations also that might occur typically start with a bacterial film, like and a bryozoan, then, maybe. And then another organism overlays that and okay. settles down L- on.
0: it. Let that. me ask you this: as a <clears throat> as a marine biology student who knows nothing about this topic and is way too many years. Uh, to even remember most of this stuff, but a, a healthy, vibrant, well, you know, good shape uh, lobster uh, does it shell have a bacterial layer typically? And if it does, is there, does does it change when this lobster gets a little bit, let's say, less healthy?
2: Well, okay, you know that is a matter of conjecture. And, in, uh, and it is my opinion as a researcher on this okay. that, that um, the bacterial film on a healthy lobster is very sparse, relatively sparse. And, and I have a colleague who does scanning electron microscopy on the surface of the lobster cuticle, and you can see bacteria and even viruses on the surface of the lobster cuticle, but it's rather relatively sparse. Hmm. Okay. When you feel the lobster cuticle, um, and I, I'm not, I don't think we covered this in our last show. When you feel the lobster, it's rather slippery. Yeah.
3: yeah.
0: We. Yeah. And what it we can. We did and, cover that. And, well, no. And it,
2: that is due to the fact that it is secreting, um, or it is um, dissolving calcium carbonate. And that calcium carbonate, um, the calcium diffuses away, got it, and the high, and the um, uh, carbonate takes a proton from water, leaves behind a hydroxyl, which um, okay. raises the pH of ah. that surface. And, and a high pH, a high pH surface is a surface that a bacterium finds it hard to settle down on
0: but there right. are bacteria that can do it okay so when in, and when you say it's dissolving calcium carbonate that means you're referring to its own shell there and it produces yes. this environment essentially on its surface that is not particularly conducive to bacteria and right. so when the shell is is not when the animals not healthy it doesn't have this slippery field this stuff the bacteria right. start and that change in the surface and the substrate uh, makes it more, it sounds like, conducive to a, a barnacle larvae attaching and growing right. into. So it does seem to me that, yeah, inc-
1: I can see where you're going it with this. It inc- seems totally reasonable. Yeah, but easier I, to see. I do want to re-go over yeah, something yeah. from the last show, Joe, really quick. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, one of the essential elements here of lobster shell disease is... Uh, the temperature of the water and the way that the lobsters are able to, like the acidification and what's going on there with the carbonate and the hydroxyl that you just explained. And could we just as a quick little primer, go back over that very important process for, I think all shellfish, but lobsters certainly included and um, why uh, you might expect to see a change in that, uh, chemistry with a different water temperature?
2: Uh, well, the calcium carbonate, of course, dissolves uh, in the water. Uh, it, it's fairly insoluble, but um, it dissolves slowly in the water. And so, uh, all the way from the marble or the uh the, the the cliffs of dover to uh uh to uh Mollus shells to crustacean shells they all have calcium carbonate in them and when it dissolves uh and uh, people who have aquaria know that okay in part of your filter in you have marble chips which hmm. uh, dissolve and keep the pH of the water uh, more alkaline. And, and that's an important part of having a healthy aquarium, is not allowing your aquarium to get too acidic. Right. And, uh, and so uh, that, whole, that whole idea of keeping your pH high, so the open ocean is pH 8.3, uh, and as you add CO two to it, you're adding carbonic acid
0: to right. the ocean. Well, for and, Joe, hang on a second. And the ocean, I gotta let me let me interrupt you. I'm sorry to interrupt, but for the yeah. benefit of our audience out there, a pH of eight point six is a slightly uh, alkaline. Eight point three. Eight point three is an al- is on the alkaline side of the pH scale, right? Right. Like Uh, neutral neutral pH is 7. Right, Right. okay. So a smaller pH number is more acidic. Right. And the increase in CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, which then is dissolved into water, this stuff is absorbed by the ocean, increases the acidification of the water. It changes the pH, right?
2: Yeah. Most people are saying, oh, you're adding CO2 to the water. That's carbonate. That's carbonate. Well, <laughs> yes, but the most important part is you're adding the acid to it. Right. You're adding uh, the, the CO2 combines with water to make carbonic acid. Okay. And which, as
0: that happens now, yeah. the, the, because all of these animals that are have carbon-based or, uh, or calcium-based shells, uh, calcium carbonate-based animals, mollusks and all of the shrimps and lobsters and stuff like that, this pH change is... Uh, meaningful in terms of the the chemistry of these animals and the chemistry of how they grow and right yes that's the assertion that's been made and out in the west coast we know that the crab fishermen the dungeness crab fishermen on the west coast have have filed suit because of the impact of acidification on the crab fishery out there uh, we've also read about. Uh, communities that are uh, shellfish-based communities that have a fishery that are also seeing changes in the populations of uh, shellfish and the harvestability and the health of those animals. Uh, This ocean acidification thing seems, when I first heard it, I'm like, come on, really? Is that possible? The ocean is so big. I had the, the ocean is really big attitude. But ocean acidification is a real thing. Do you see that, and can you measure that change in in pH on your cruises?
2: Uh, well, certainly we can. We have, and and uh, you know the the open ocean itself has uh, has uh, acidified. So going from uh, eight eight point three down to about eight point two. Now that is almost meaningless not it's not totally meaningless but it is somewhat meaningless because at the bottom of the water column where most of the animals live they are all pumping out protons they are all making more they're making their local environment more acid so instead of the 8.3 of the so-called open ocean the bottom of uh, of uh, say the uh, the ocean shelf, right. where we do most of our fishing. We don't really fish in the great deeps of the of the Atlantic Ocean. Here we fish on the shelf. That shelf, uh, there are living organisms there. As soon as you have living organisms, they're metabolizing and they're pumping out. CO2 themselves Hmm. and they're pumping out acid, Mm -hmm. and that acid lowers the pH to 7.8, or in some cases, 7.7. So, already you are, um, if you have living organisms, they are acidifying the the bottom. Now, add to that ocean acidification, you are you are, again, lowering it even more. Okay. And as a result, your
0: starting point is lower. Gotcha. So this is a little bit of a a, uh, a straw that broke the camel's back sort of thing. I mean, we already know that right. the, it's more acid in the deep water because of the natural me- metabolism of the creatures, and they're obviously adapted to that. That's the condition that there is normal. Uh, but when you tip that... Uh, slightly, it throws off the chemical processes that these animals use to survive. Is that a fair conclusion?
2: Yes, and it, it also has to do with certain minerals that are found in living organisms, and um, the the two most important are calcite and aragonite. Hmm. Those are both calcium carbonate. They're crystalline forms of calcium carbonate and they have different solubility coefficients so you're dealing with situations in oceans where uh you know as you acidify the ocean you're making those um minerals more soluble right and less likely to be stable so You know, some of the more sensitive organisms are the larval stages that have calcium carbonate that is um, almost in immediate um, uh, reaction with the ocean water. Okay. And um, if you depend upon a structure in your surface to be aragonite, or calcite okay the solubility coefficient of that which depends upon the ph is critical critical okay
0: at a ph let me let me let me do something for the audience here because i'm following what you're saying and uh and and this does require a little bit of an understanding in the first show you went over the phases the larval phases of lobsters which is not unlike crabs and other crustacean organisms Um, and these, they're very small. These shells, which do exist in their early larval stages, are quite thin and delicate and as you're saying they they're they're composed sometimes depending on what animal it is a calcite or what's the other one uh, did you say argonite? no that's not
2: aragonite aragonite a r a g aragonite okay
0: and the solubility quotient what that means folks is its sensitivity to being dissolved essentially that that mineral as you said depend this these animals depend on this structure this is their bones essentially this is their shell yeah. Their survival depends on it. And if that shell is more susceptible to being uh, thinned or dissolved, that kills these larva stages and affects the reproductive, the productivity of the. Right? And I want to. Am I following right? Am I I
1: following? Yeah, I'm trying to summarize for the audience. Well, uh, and I just want to throw something in here, Joe, uh, another question. Um, So when I'm thinking about these like really small larval state, Organisms that have a, an exoskeleton, I think that boy, when you're that tiny, the percent of your body of the body of the organism that is uh, calcium-based is greater than say when the organism gets larger. Sure, the the shell gets bigger, but there's there's more mass uh, elsewhere. There's there's internals. There, you know, it's a bigger animal. Yeah. There's more yeah. volume there, and so I can imagine that just by virtue of the Shell being more of it <laughs> by proportion, that uh, yes. it just really that's, the, that's that is the uh, ancient surface
2: versus volume argument. Yes, <laughs> that's ancient. That's...
0: <laughs> that is uh, yeah. or, some Tapping of the best the original, original science was a, on buoyancy versus volume. Yeah, uh, centuries. So, yes. Joe, um, understanding the relationship with acidification, I think we—I think we've. Kind of touch that, but what is the relationship uh, between uh, acidification, uh, shell shell health? And we went, we started with the bacterial layer. We started with the barnacles. Um, when when the ocean temperatures and the and the pH is slightly changed uh, by these cart CO2 emissions that we pump into the atmosphere. What is the relationship between this stuff acidification uh and shell disease and what's the how are how are they connected
2: Well in, yes in in my in my idea of shell disease uh it is making the lobster more vulnerable when um they don't have enough calcium carbonate dissolving slowly to lower the, to uh, raise the pH of the surface uh, to a point that bacteria are, uh, are prevented from landing. Mm -hmm. We, uh, uh, the, the open surface of a back, of a lobster um, unless you get a bunch of bacteria, a colony of bacteria of a certain size, when they produce a, um, a proton um, it's not, it, it's going to diffuse away protons diffuse very rapidly so that on a flat surface, if a bacterium is producing protons it's not really going to have too much of an effect on the surface okay but if you get a colony of them together then they can and and uh, so you have a bacterial film and if that film gets dense dense enough so that they're overlapping bacteria then they can create a small environment underneath their surface Man. Uh, in between them and the, the shell, shell Got it. that allows those protons to actually have an effect on the shell.
0: Interesting. This is so interesting to me. So when you, it's such a micro environment, such a fascinating thing. A lobster shell disease is a bacterial infection of the animal, right? That can, yes. that, yes. that and, exists and it, in a pocket or some sort of small it's like a pimple. I'm if I'd say it to the folks <laughs> out there, it's a skin, it's a skin infection essentially, and if it's there long enough and it's persistent enough, it sort of dissolves down into the animal and can reach the internal organs of the animal, the, the tissue, right? And this is yes, when that this is uh, the life-threatening condition of lobster shell disease, right?
2: Right, but um, and to a certain extent, it is it requires that colony of bacteria that can start creating the lesion and they need to um the, the actual calcium carbonate is um is sort of in the next layer down the epicuticle of the of the uh lobster which is above the calcite uh, above the calcite layer so the the calcium carbonate layer is actually separated from gotcha. the surface by a um, a sort of lipid uh, and um, a protein layer
3: mm-hmm.
2: that they need to break through, and so they they need to be able and so the pH of the surrounding water of this unstirred layer that I talk about on the surface of the of the shell the pH needs to be low enough so that a colony can start and start digesting the lipid and the protein in that outer sheet. Once they get through that and they can start uh, uh, more uh, actively dissolving the calcium carbonate, then they can form, uh, you know, sort of a little hole in the surface, a little pit in the surface. Yeah. And... Mm. And um, after that, once they've established that pit, all sorts of other organisms can come in, and in other bacteria.
3: occupy. I mean, uh,
0: so when you're making this description and you're saying they, you're referring to the bacteria. That the they, bacteria. Yes, they have to get through the lipid layer first. And once they get that, they've created a little pit in the shell surface of a lobster. They create this zone where they can all live. they got a little space now. Right. They can also be occupied by other bacteria or organisms we don't like. Uh, what What is it about that process that makes them more susceptible to a barnacle?
2: Oh, well, the barnacles are even separate. The yeah. barnacles are, are separate. They have their separate life on the cuticle surface. Okay and they're just uh, they're just there because they have want a place to hold on they can
0: they're sessile as they say and they attach but they're they're attached their ability to attach to a lobster is easier if that the surface of the lobster is unhealthy it, it does mm-hmm.
2: has a bacterial film on it yes.
0: okay all right so wow you know i mean science right folks the reason i want to do this and joe and why i so much appreciate your show and talking to you is that we you know this is how much work goes into sorting out what's going on in the environment out there and it is highly highly technical it begins with these boat trips on the albatross or the new boat what's the name of the new boat The named after the guy the explorer what was his name
2: the, <laughs> all right H.B. Bigelow
0: the H.B. Henry, Henry B. Bigelow Henry B. Bigelow who uh, I just I didn't ask you before uh, must have surveyed that area what in the 1700s or earlier
2: no no about the 18 uh, 1880s uh, that, 1880s Okay. Uh, the 1880s is the time when like Woods Hole the Woods Hole oceanographic uh, and Woods Hole uh, the marine biology labs were established in the 1880s
0: how fantastic the first the
2: first actually experiment actual experiment were done back then on um hypotheses were established and tested Hmm. and all of that really started uh, around the 1880s i mean uh, before that you had scientists coming together at the royal society in london yeah and they would they would hypothesize things and they would argue about things that were scientific so for instance uh, in my older interest in cockroaches uh, they argued whether a cockroach can could regenerate a leg huh. and no one thought of well, let's do an experiment. And pull take a leg, leg off of a and yeah, and see, see what happens. It regenerates. Right, the they, scientific they, method
0: took a long they, time to establish. Yeah,
2: the philosophical question: Can a, Should a cockroach be able to mm-hmm. regenerate a leg?
0: You should test it and find out.
2: It was out. in the 1880s in the in the United States that a scientist at the the Clark Institute, um, and he was a scientist that also worked at the MBL. At the marine biology labs in the mm-hmm. summertime but he asked that question for the first time yep. in history well tell us Someone the answer I an want to know experiment.
0: can a cockroach regenerate a leg yes it can, <laughs> <laughs> it can way ex- to and, go science <laughs> and
2: I did the work on also on on how it delays its molting cycle in order to regenerate wow. a leg.
1: that's fascinating
2: and uh, so that it can regenerate it in
0: one molting cycle. Wow, needs to create that if bud. You lose your leg. The next time you molt, you have a completely new leg. Very interesting. And, Which you know, for the listeners out there. You uh, escape from your foot right. the next
2: time you see one.
0: In the last show, you explained the relationship between insects and lobsters and why looking at these, what's happening in these critters uh it makes sense to look at both but uh, could you refresh our audience's memory why is it that understanding molting in cockroaches which i hate is similar to l- molting in lobsters which i love
2: okay well it's all controlled by uh, uh, molting hormones and uh, and also by a guysone is the a steroid hormone that um, there's a type called crust ecdison, like crustacean mm-hmm. ictisone huh. that exists in, in crustaceans, and a different one, uh, different ecdison, uh, alpha and uh, beta ecdison, which exist in insects which control their molting so you Mm -hmm. inject you can inject them with a disone and a certain number of days later they'll molt Wow! because the disone has stimulated their epidermis to produce a new cuticle under the old one and then they molt that cuticle uh to uh give a larger self
0: right so uh,
2: the opportunity to
0: grow and uh, ladies and gentlemen the reason why we spent a reason why i'm interested in the molting is there is a relationship between molting and how frequently that's happening in lobsters and the prevalence of lobster shell disease which is you explained in our last show again but the 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 idea is lobster shell disease needs time to uh, to really happen on the surface shell of a lobster, and uh, the longer the period between the molt, when the molt occurs, it'll strip the old shell away and the disease goes with it. But if the molt is taking longer, as you said, in pregnant females, they don't molt because they're in that stage. They're susceptible to this disease. So this molting relationship with lobster shell disease is real, right?
2: Absolutely. And and this uh, spring 2019, uh, the the great abundant uh instances of shell disease were found in females that were carrying eggs. Fascinating. And, uh, and also in older lobsters that molt less than once a year. So uh, in both these instances, the shell disease has been given enough time to uh, to develop.
0: Hmm. Does that... Um, it, so this is something that that I'm curious about, is, is because it, it's the pregnant females particularly... That are susceptible to more susceptible to shell disease because of the delay in molting. Uh, Does that pose to some extent a threat to the reproductive health of the population?
2: Well, absolutely. Uh, uh, We depend upon the females, and some people say the older females that are producing, uh, uh, you know, orders of magnitude more. Eggs than the younger females, we depend upon those old females to produce the, the larvae that are going to be the next generation and uh, okay. and so you know when we catch all of the uh, young lobsters that uh, that may not be such a great burden on the population because you have uh, at least in Maine we, we have brood stock. a law against catching the older, uh, larger lobsters. So hmm. there's a, a maximum size of lobster that you can actually commercially okay. catch and right. sell.
0: You want to leave those older, productive animals in the system because that's where the new ones come from.
2: Uh, yeah, the- and those are just the ones that are being killed off. The older, uh, but also uh, with, there were plenty of young females carrying eggs that had shell disease, and huh. and the, the the you know the the iceberg sort of below the surface is that we don't even measure all those lobsters that died because their shell disease progressed to a point hmm, where wow. they just were predated by fish or you know died.
0: Okay, wow. So there's a, yeah, you don't that that's not samplable because they're not getting in the net or crawling in the net or whatever it is that you're using to catch them. Um, The other thing I wanted to pull together was this shift north. You said that as temperatures are changing, and we know that there's a bumper crop right now in the Gulf of Maine of lobsters that happens to be related to the sweet spot of the temperature regime now that really is promoting their growth. But if we you had mentioned on last show that down in New York in Long Island Sound and even south of there the lobs the center of the lobster fishing in America, used to be south of Cape Cod. Now it is north of Cape Cod, and that migration. I, this is not and I'm, when we say this we don't say that the, the the animals are walking from New York to Maine. It's that the reproductive health of the fishery is transmitting further north every year. Um, is it the understanding of the scientific community that 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 migration, that shift in the population center, is temperature related? Uh,
2: yes, in general. I mean, uh, lots of organisms, including the Gulf of Maine shrimp, which is the the, the northern shrimp, Pandalus borealis, is moving north, and uh, and uh, we don't know anything about whether that has something to do with uh, their production of eggs or any disease or not they're just moving north uh to um uh, more normal temperatures for them i mean they're mm-hmm. surviving and, and prospering uh further north and in the gulf of maine they're just uh dying out i mean we had a, a wonderful catch of uh, a pocket of 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 uh, uh the northern shrimp uh, and um, I, I, I just picked out on them, you know, I <laughs> ate them sashimi style, you know, nice. you just uh, pop off their heads and and, Down uh, they go. and <laughs> express the uh, their tail meat into your mouth. And it's so sweet. <laughs> and it is it's something that we have loved in the Gulf of Maine. And now uh, the fishery is closed. There aren't enough to commercially catch. And uh, um, so the temperature is a factor for the lobster as well. But in addition to that, we have the shell disease that is killing off the reproductive population so that, you know, there is a a real collapse uh, due to their nonviability as well as um, the, 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 in, in that, at that temperature, as well as the fact that shell disease is, decimating the larval stages
1: Joe I want to ask a couple questions here kind of to zoom back out you know Noah's conducting these uh, really incredible scientific expeditions Um, you have an opportunity to spend a considerable amount of time on a vessel with other researchers I'm sure that you guys are talking about uh, other work your work and work adjacent to yours uh, maybe in other Species, maybe other species with exoskeletons. Uh, uh, I'm curious to know what the vibe was like on the boat. Uh, is are there themes that are go beyond just lobsters here that you're seeing in other species? And you know, what are you guys talking about as you're reviewing this data in real time and seeing these hauls come in? What's what what are what's the water cooler talk like on this vessel?
2: Well. The, the water cooler talk has a lot to do with uh, uh, their professional development, uh, you know, and, you know, what they're doing. And uh, an interesting point is that uh, you know, uh, I'm a, a volunteer on the ship, so I don't get paid anything, but I'm, I'm given this opportunity to work on the ship and to gather data and actually participate with the NOAA scientists, so about half of the scientists on the on um doing the survey are uh are uh no. volunteers. Oh. And so half are actually professional NOAA uh, scientists. And um uh, and actually there is a fraction of them that are uh contracted huh. so that They don't work for the government. They don't have a government pension. And um, there's this transition in the survey to um, having uh, a number of NOAA scientists, um, government-employed scientists, and a fraction of total volunteers like myself and also a fraction of um, contracted scientists.
0: And who, who, who would who would contract? Would you, would, would you be working for the Lobster Association? Or who, who would contract to put a scientist on that boat? What kind of, what there kind are of companies. interest? Companies. There are
2: companies that um, provide contracted scientists. Yeah, okay. And it's, it's uh, you know, so you're... Your retirement benefits your all sorts of thing your your medical care are all um yeah part of that organization so the the government is uh, outsourcing ah. some of its science
0: i gotcha the, and and i think for the listeners and that's out there an economic I,
2: thing it I is mean, this
0: is the outsourcing of government services where the government contracts with a with a company whose job it is to supply worker bees professional level worker bees to the right. government i've right. i've been uh, solicited by a few of those guys i've looked at what they do Uh, and that happens all across the federal spectrum uh, yes in in science and and beyond really um okay so they're working they're contracted to the government through a private company. yeah
2: part of the water cooler talk is about that and and then part of the water cooler talk is about um organisms you know uh because a lot of these scientists are interested in particular organisms and uh and so we'll talk about those. And um, and then, uh, of course, I tell them about lobsters. They're all interested in what I'm doing and why I'm out there. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm w- what would be called an expert cutter. I try to avoid using the computer, being the recorder, because I love doing the cutting.
1: You want to get <laughs> your hands on the organism and, and really touch yes. and feel it. I totally get that. But I want to circle back because one of the things that I'm just genuinely very interested in here is, you know, we we look at kind of this pan coastal across America, across the world perspective. And we see themes emerging all the time from oftentimes kind of disparate places. We're seeing trends and there you are. You're in this crucible of scientific research out at sea you're pretty uh i know it's modern it's a nice new boat i'm sure you might even be able to like call home or something but you know you're going you're on the boat with these guys i'm just curious if when you're talking about boy lobster shell disease all the you know the first hour of this program today we talked about the science that the same chemistry that is affecting lobsters the you know the the other fish are swimming around in it the other uh, you know animals are all in that same system are there parallels that you see between lobsters and other and your research i'm not so much talking about uh the organisms themselves but just like in the scientific community are there trends joe that you see uh with your work and and other silos of research uh,
2: well of course the, the the lobster research is somewhat unique um but there, there are other, other themes, uh, you know, such as hake, and the importance of hake, and the importance of haddock, and the importance of cod. Uh, and, uh, 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 and in our surveys, the, the, the Noah people will design certain elements in, and there'll be uh, each year there may be a change or a shift in the interest in a particular organism or not. And, uh, you know, many of the workers out there have nothing to do with that. You know, the people who design it are back in Woods Hole using their computers, analyzing the data that comes from the ship to decide, you know, which species should we be focusing on and uh for instance out on the ship uh, all of a sudden we'll see well they're not interested in red hake at all anymore Gee, you know they 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 only make a meat uh, you know and the computer tells you whether you need to open the stomach of this individual or uh, preserve the stomach and uh, so you're you're there and the computer says uh, no don't do the stomach on this one don't do the stomach on that one and uh-huh. you say well, wow, why aren't we interested in Red Hake anymore? Somehow they have enough information on Red Hake and the people in uh, in Woods Hole say, okay, well, let's put our effort into uh, now Haddock. And, okay,
3: uh, that makes and, sense, the uh, study uh, design. So you're,
2: you're asking what the water cooler, you know, us, us people in the water cooler, we're supposed to be, uh, in a sense, uh we're supposed to be objective scientists. We just uh, sort of do what we're told t- to do to measure, and uh, you know, don't question. Right. Okay. <laughs> the protocol while you're applying the protocol.
0: Right. I got you. it
2: sort of makes it difficult for me because, like, when I'm out there and I, and uh, because I'm studying the lobster in other ways than just shell disease. Uh, You know, I get to survey all the lobsters that say the other the night I was on the day shift. So the night shift produces all these lobsters and, uh, you know, they're in baskets ready to be returned to the sea or put in put in the live tank so that we eat them. Um, uh, But the uh, uh, but I go through them to uh, look for my other project landmark analysis and so when i go through them and i find a lobster that has shell disease but has not been recorded as having shell disease because if it had been recorded as having shell disease they would have put it in the freezer for me to take home right and so so that's a a false negative that has occurred in the data and uh, i'm you know um, I I can say that I'm a little upset that okay this shell disease level 2 lobster has not been recognized right. by the observer on the other shift
0: and that's you and, know this part uh, about about which I think it, I'm glad you're being frank about that there's a skill and an expertise as a scientist yes. and as yeah. a researcher in in the recognition of this condition and, and,
2: and that has been part of my objective to is, develop
0: is, train other uh, people to see training, it uh, yeah
2: material to train people how to recognize it but of course we've got uh, four different we've got four different legs there are different people on each leg yeah and they have to be able to recognize shell disease if we're going to collect this data.
0: Right, with some sort of consistency in the standard right. and how that's understood and applied in visual. This is primarily a visual exercise, right?
2: Right, and then I can I can detect the false positives. That is, when they have said, this is shell disease, and then when I get the frozen lobster and examine it and say, aha, this particular one is a false positive. It doesn't have shell disease. This was another mm-hmm. uh, malady of their surface uh, an accident or maybe a fungus or something uh, okay. a different type of uh, a different you, type of disease that we're, is not epizootic shell
0: disease. okay so just for the to close this topic out the false positives false negative uh, universe of uh, and and how how frequently as a, the senior researcher out there, is it happening more than you would like? Obviously, any any is more than you would like, but how big of a deal is this?
2: Well, I only found one. <laughs>
0: well, that's good. <laughs>
2: only one false positive. That's great. But, uh, but uh, I found, uh, I think, in the, in the about 45 Mist- actual shell disease uh, lobsters that were said to have shell disease by the observer... Uh, uh, three of them were. Three of them had uh, damage to the cuticle that was not shell disease. One of them had damage to the cuticle, and then a little teeny speck of shell disease.
0: <laughs> okay,
2: interesting. <laughs> that uh, you know, I, uh, that is in the the would put it in the grade one, in between. Uh, greater than zero but less than one percent of the surface of all the critical
0: joe and uh, um, we uh i want to shift the topic and i think the uh, the update on the cruise the biology in the shell fo- uh, yeah. shell all of that uh to the, some topics that you you and i and tyler spoke about uh in advance of this uh interview right. a little bit different but um, yeah. I really want to – I know this has gone long, Joe, but I really think these, uh, I, these topics are great. we got to cover this other stuff. we got to cover this. Let's give it a go. Right. I mean, one of the things that you talked about is these – we're talking about the health of the fishery, really, and stresses on the fishery, the lobster fishery. And You had mentioned uh, two things that really caught my attention. One is the tariffs that have been recently imposed on Maine lobster uh, by China – and, and let's just start with that one. Can you tell us what's going on up in Maine and in the lobster fishery with respect to tariffs? I didn't realize that that had happened. So fill us in.
2: Well, effectively, we lost uh, the China connection. We the, we don't sell lobsters or very, very few lobsters to China now because of that tariff. And, and all of the business went to Canada. I mean, uh, so we had this canada usa lobstermen's uh uh forum uh, uh last month and uh what was it was really interesting that you know they were very forthright and talking about it of course the canadians of are are uh, being able to sell their lobsters in fact they created flights from halifax nova scotia directly to Beijing wow so they have direct flights of lobster cargo
1: just just a, a <laughs> just, hold full just, of lobster
2: just to just to transmit lobsters that um, of course the Chinese New Year's and uh, well, there are three holidays there's Christmas New Year's and Chinese New Year's that are the biggest sales of lobster and then other times there's you know just regular interest okay. in lobsters but those are the big money operations I mean, and it, uh, I, this year the 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 lobsters in Beijing came from Canada
1: so i mean just to uh, give an idea or, of the value of the fishery the fact that you have a dedicated lobster flight that is moving lobsters from uh, Canada to Beijing is just an incredible testament to the value of that fishery that has now been shifted to Canada. That's got to be worth just alone. That's got to be a market worth millions of dollars. I would guess.
2: Yes, and I I don't know those numbers. I you know that's not something I pay too much attention to. But what I uh, what I did uh, pay some attention to is what the American lobster. Industry is doing in response. Uh, I mean, that's a tremendous loss. And, uh, you know, it's just probably going to put some lobstermen in Maine uh, and perhaps New Hampshire and, and Massachusetts out of business. But uh, uh, the lobster. So we had at this forum, we had also representatives from industry. So from the Canadian Lobster industry, uh lobster processing industry and the american lobster processing industry and uh, and it was really fascinating uh, uh listening to them and how they have uh, uh, increased in efficiency and whatever uh the the canadians have, have now have a a boat to destination tracking for all lobsters so interesting uh, at a destination if if lobsters reach a destination and maybe uh, uh, they find oh wow 10% of them are dead uh, or 10% of them are near dead they can track how those lobsters were treated you know they have what um, a, a recorder that goes along with the cases of lobsters through their entire trip, they know exactly what route they took, and they know what temperature they were at, whether they were shocked, whether whether there was some kind of a you know hold up or delay at any stage, uh, so that they they can identify exactly where the animals lost their viability.
0: Hmm. Okay, let's let's so this is a Canadian uh, uh, innovation in the market where they're tracking as you say yes. from now let's see does it start at the boat can they tell you what boat it came off of or where yes. it was landed yes. and can they, they tell can you tell. where it was caught yes and all, and all the way to the retail standpoint whether it's your local grocery store with a life tank or a restaurant does it go all the way through
2: right all the way it's oh, incredible mean, those lobsters well, for as long as as they are associated with that sensor they have a sensor yeah okay is recording all this information.
0: Damn.
2: And uh, on the American side, we don't have that sort of capability. However, the processors—you know—once the lobster reaches a processor, uh, well, first of all, they're very attentive to the idea of how well the lobster was treated. You know, by the particular captains, because they really. Uh, uh you know so there's there's some issues about uh you know whether in the, in your live tank you know uh how are they being treated the circulation of water really uh, whether they're being oxygenated or not or, it's not really oxygen that is the issue it's co2 again the 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 real uh, villain here is co2 huh uh,
0: so, CO2 on board a, on, so on board a ship. on board a ship you don't You've got a live well. You just throw them down in there. Supposedly, seawater is coming in and out of that uh, yes. tank, but if it's not circulating well, the, then the CO2 level, just like respiration does, uh, right. can and, kill them.
2: And CO2 them. is... I mean, lobsters can be in very low oxygen situations, and that doesn't harm them
0: that much. Okay,
2: But if the CO2 level goes up,
0: then that can kill them. Huh. So you're at this meeting. This is the Canada-U.S. lobstermen's town meeting in Portland, Maine. This happened back in, uh, was it May? Uh, Uh, Last
2: month? Yes. It was was just after I got back
0: from... Okay. So we're um, hearing about the tariff shift and that the China market is now a Canadian market and no longer an American market. Thank you very much to the tariffs. Uh, We're winning... I mean, somebody's winning. The lobstermen in Maine aren't winning, but somebody's winning. The and then this processing innovation that the Canadians are doing. How did the Americans uh, respond? What is the American processor's uh, thoughts on this source tracking protocol?
2: Well, uh, the Americans' response is okay. <laughs> we've lo- we're losing our European. Uh, customers we're using uh, losing our uh, Chinese uh, where do we sell our lobsters well they have made a huge effort to send our lobsters throughout the nation so the one of the biggest processors of lobsters uh, was there to talk about it and he um, he describe the fact that they can the quality of their uh, transport of lobsters has increased they don't particularly send them by air anymore i mean you they can send them by air they send them by truck by trucks that are very special trucks and they can Take care of those lobsters for 84 hours.
0: 84 hours. To, so that's two, three days. The
2: nation. They can reach any place in the nation in 84 hours. Wow. By one of these
0: trucks. So if you're in San Francisco and you're having a Maine lobster, that thing was driven across the country most likely in the past yeah. couple of days. Yes. Eighty-four hours, they can reach anywhere in the United States now, and by truck, right. that's pretty cool. Yeah,
2: and uh, and so as a result, um, they've been able to sell the lobsters that we have available that we can't sell to China and uh, and Europe. Uh, I mean, because Europe also buys, or used to buy a lot of lobsters from us.
0: Huh. So you also mentioned that at the meeting, uh, there is a price, a minimum. price, price, in the Canadian side of the border, in the Canadian lobster fishery, that they have a price at the dock uh, standard. Can you tell us about that, and how does that work in that fishery?
2: Well, it worked very poorly in the fishery. (laughs) Uh, uh, And there was a representative of the sort of, uh, a critic of the government, He's a thorn in the side of the Canadian government and, and, uh, he was invited. And with the agreement of the government, because, you know, he's a valuable person, a very valuable critic, uh, in my, in my career, I found some of the most valuable people to be the, your critics. I mean, if you know, your, your friends are very often going to tell you nice things. You really need a good critic to tell you what's going wrong. And um, what this critic said is that, you know, for a long time, uh, the Canadians have been trying to regulate their lobster fishery by setting the price at the dock. And um, this time it was relatively disastrous for the fishermen. You know, they set the price too low and even when the demand was high, and they were sending all these lobsters to to China, uh, of course China was getting a really good, relatively low price. Wow! And it was the lobstermen who was hurting.
0: That doesn't make. Uh, that doesn't sound good at all. So, wait, uh,
2: yeah, I, I, to... I can't really put any absolute numbers on this, but this critic was uh, uh, was pretty pretty vehement about. the uh, uh Canada having to change
0: its way of doing things
1: that's very interesting so they they set the market price at the dock apparently yes. which for,
0: is for the producer now the the processor can sell the lobster at a higher but he's getting the money not the fisherman is that right. kind of how it happens
2: I guess you know I you know
1: yeah you're obviously like
2: probably a, that that would probably become more sensitive it's interesting that at this whole meeting, I was the only one who mentioned shell disease.
0: Yeah, how did it go over? I mean, I, tell us about the receptivity <laughs> it of, went over, of your research in in the in the it market. It went over.
2: Uh, well, I wasn't really presenting at the conference. I was attending the conference, listening, and of course, we had opportunities for questions and answers, and the the, the and they had a, a session on. The quality of the lobster <laughs> and said, okay this is my, this is my session i'm going to be commenting and discussing things and uh, and so I, I i brought it up and it went over like a lead balloon
0: <laughs> so what did they say. say sit down or did they say that's it's really not nothing. a pr- they it's no response nothing.
2: i i got up I, <laughs> <laughs> I i told them about about uh you know the experience that that shell disease was being found all around this, uh, this, uh, uh, ring of fire. Uh, you know, I, I didn't really actually use the ring of fire. Uh, no,
0: allusion,
1: but that's a nice touch.
2: I said I was found in all areas, including Canadian orders. And, um, uh, and, silence
0: (laughs) yeah you're sort of like uh you're sort of like debbie downer at the meeting like do we really want to know this we have enough trouble we don't need to know that the animals are getting sick but but i think that's part of the job of the scientists out there who do the work count things as i call them if you want to get mad at scientists they count things they'll tell you what the numbers are you can like them or not right. like them, but that's what they do. <laughs> right, and so uh, the implications of that for the fishery are probably not welcome, given the stresses uh, on the salmon fishery at its time of, you know, in in Maine, particularly at a time where it's at a peak. It's not good news. Who wants to hear bad news? But you've got to, right. you know, you've got I'm to face sure it
2: though. I'm sure that the fishermen are seeing shell disease lobsters however they're leaving them there you know um uh, it's pretty well known among the lobstermen that it's not contagious so you know if they just leave it in the ocean perhaps it'll be able to molt and they'll be able to catch it the next time
0: right well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Dr. Joseph Kunkel from the University
1: of New England, Biddeford. One thing, right, one thing, Peter. Before oh, yeah. before we before sign wrap on, and up, and I'm sorry, I gave Peter the Joe. <laughs> you couldn't see us, but I gave him the wrap it up. Tyler always just like we had to wrap. <laughs> but up. I, it just occurred to me, <laughs> I had ahead. one big question that I just I wanted to say for the very end. Uh, one of the things, Joe, that you have hinted at uh, on this pod today is that you got you got to eat. A lot of this uh food the seafood that you harvested on the expedition and that you were in fact had the shrimp and i just want to know what some of these uh how was it some of these meals at sea were like i mean it's got to be quite a thing
2: well you know um the atlantic halibut is another wonderful delicacy that um uh is somewhat uh recovering in the gulf of maine that's uh, good. and uh so we they had caught a huge halibut on the leg beforehand
0: how big and, come on uh, you and, can't do a fish so story we, without uh, come on you gotta do how big uh
2: well greater uh something like uh, one and a quarter meters
0: wow long. So, so that's about a four feet four and a half foot long halibut
2: yeah, and i um i have uh I have experienced the catching of uh, several meter plus uh, uh, halibuts, but I've never seen one and a quarter meter halibut. Uh, of course, up in Canada, not in Canada, Alaska. Uh, up in up in Alaska, they have yeah like nine hundred pound and right. eight hundred pound
0: right. Big so how are, how tasty was this meter and a quarter lobster oh, y'all delicious y'all right. <laughs> halibut, halibut. after well you measured ch- it and well got all the well science how halibut. how was it prepared was it with butter did you do the garlic what happened
1: <laughs> did we did we lose you joe um
2: uh, my my wife is
0: saying cut it <laughs> <laughs> just a second ask her to come on we want to ask her a question <laughs> uh, how does she like the seafood <laughs> did you bring you any just, seafood back? Uh, outside in the garden <laughs>
2: you might have heard the railroad going by the, <laughs> at one section well the uh, nor'easter yeah so you the had nor'easter, some uh, line line is that amtrak about yeah amtrak about oh about 200 yards away
0: nice well joe um it sounds like a great cruise i always enjoy talking to you and in in the most serious way i enjoy the conversation but i also think the work that you're doing illuminates uh, a lot of issues along the american shoreline from a particular perspective uh, of the of the lobster fishery and uh we would love to keep up with you as your work continues and as as you learn more about the status of this very the as folks this is the wealthiest the most valued fishery on the american shoreline is the main uh industry it's not the most tonnage Although it's yeah. more than a hundred million pounds a year, it is not a small amount. It sounds like they're going to have another record-breaking year. But it's the most valuable fishery yeah, on sure. the American shoreline in terms of dollars. I believe it not that right? Number one, I think. Uh,
2: yes, I mean the scallops and and lobster yep. sort of balance back and forth. But uh, at, at currently, I think lobster has taken over. Yep. Doctor, I mean lobster, I mean, the scallops are pretty stable uh, as a, a high-priced and and uh, productive fishery, but uh, but they aren't as uh, affected by this temperature uh, swing and lack of. I mean, the scallops don't really have that. They don't molt. Many predators like like lobsters had so um i mean getting rid of the of the lobster predators has really spiked their population and also the temperature
0: okay Perfect. now i this is going to kill everybody i'm sorry you guys there's one more question because you've mentioned <laughs> the lobster predators in the reduction a couple of times is that cod i mean what 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 is what is no longer there that was a big predator of lobsters especially the little
2: well dudes. the codfish was a was yeah. a major one but right. uh also uh the spiny dogfish was a big oh, predator
0: small shark yeah
2: yeah and uh, they are being fished out because the british use them for fish and chips
0: huh really
2: yeah the they're a I principal part that. of the british fish and chips uh so wow.
1: And very interesting I'll so tell you. we
0: eat all the critters and we get more of this lobster thing i mean I, I tell you we're fighting with it's the place where we fight with uh the natural world over who gets to eat it um this is true on forage fish on herring uh and, and sardines and all these other small fish menhaden uh that we use for i don't know cat food and things like that we We change the the trophic levels, the
1: the good old food chain analysis happens. Well, and as we've said before uh, on the network, it's been said, I think, on the Catch Curve podcast, but, you know, these are wild. When you're eating seafood out of the ocean that has not been farmed, you know, these are wild animals. And we're going in there commercially harvesting and changing the way that a wild ecosystem is playing out and we don't because of the work that you do Joe we are beginning to understand this better uh you and your colleagues your 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 fellow scientists who go out and just attempt to uh fill in the missing picture but what we're realizing increasingly is that boy we put our own spin on this and uh the consequences are kind of unimaginable in some ways it's until you realize them you just you don't even know they're there
2: yeah well uh it's uh a bottomless pit of interest in, <laughs> from in my end uh, and uh, uh, I, I doubt whether the problem is going to go away and uh, uh, solutions potential solutions uh, are not going to be
0: easy right well, now we can say, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Joseph Kunkel from the University of Massachusetts, uh, Biddeford, right? Am I pronouncing uh,
2: University of New England with oh. Biddeford, okay. UMass okay. Amherst, yes.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> lobster expert. And I want to say thank you, Joe, for the work that you're doing. And all of the scientists who work their butts off around the American shoreline on this fishery and all of the other complex technical questions that we have to understand to be better at living and working and using the coastal resources. I think it's really important, and uh, I think you're quite right. It is a bottomless pit. There's always more to know, and I really appreciate the investment of time and energy by all of the folks who do it. Thanks so much.
2: Well, thank you for your interest as well in my work.
0: And uh, ladies and gentlemen, on the American Shoreline podcast, Dr. Joseph Kunkel, please listen to the podcast, like it, share it, uh, tell your friends, and uh, subscribe to it. Subscribe, and also to Coastal News Today, join us in this great investigation of the American Shoreline. Thank you so much, Dr. Kunkel. We'll look forward to having you back on again.